Acts chapter 2, we'll start in verse 42. Acts chapter 2, we are finishing this mini-series today, This is Reality. We've been in this little mini-series, This is Reality, Theological, Missional, Relational, asking and answering anew who we are as the church and a church, why we do what we do, trying to understand that from Scripture. We're going to read a few verses here. We're just going to kind of use them as a launching pad. And as we're reading this description of the early church, uh, see if you can spot their theological inclinations, the missional components, and the relational reality happening in this passage. Acts 2, verse 42, speaking of the early church, says, And they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. And day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this beautiful description of this early manifestation of your church, your body. And Lord, we ask that you would beautify this modern late manifestation of your church, us as a church, that you would do a deep transformative work in us to better reflect you, to reflect your glory, your nature, your essence, your power, your person, your love, and your gospel to and in this world. And so, Lord, as we've opened up our Bibles, we ask that you'd help us to open our hearts and that you would speak to us and transform us for your glory, that you would conform us to the image of Christ, that we'd be more like you, that we could lead more people to you, that you would cause us to be a people who are so set on fire, so healed and restored by your love that we're set free to love others, to be agents of healing in this world for those who are deeply wounded. We ask together that you'd please help me to communicate your truth, that I'd be faithful to who you are and what your word says, that you would anoint my mind and my mouth and that everything that comes from my mouth would be for your glory and from your throne. We ask it together in Jesus' name, amen. So this is reality, theological, missional, relational. We've talked about the fact that we are theological, meaning we want to be, we must be shaped by the nature, the essence, and the word of God. And what we learn about the nature, the essence of God is that God is a community of love. In his very nature, it's a triune God, he's a community of love. Therefore, he is a missionary God. Because God is a missionary God, we are a missional people, meaning we are aware of and concerned about God's work in this world, and we want to be involved in it. We understand that God's work in this world goes forth in the context and in the action of loving relationships. Therefore, we are a relational people. 
We want to be purposeful about loving and caring for people for the glory and the purposes of God. So when we say that the church or this church reality is relational, we are saying that we give priority to and want to be intentional about loving God and loving others in a way that exposes and explains God to the world. And in doing that, we want to make sure that God himself is the motive, that we hold God as the supreme goal and not love. You see, we've got to maintain this distinction. God is love. The Bible reveals that. But that doesn't mean that love is God. Popular culture thinks that. God is love, okay? But love is not God. God himself is supreme, not the thing that is love. Popular culture has sought to deify love. If you listen to what we sing about, what we talk about, what we war about, love. We have deified love and made that the supreme thing. It in and of itself is not the supreme thing. God himself is supreme. So when we talk about relationships, the motive and the ultimate goal is God and the glory of God. And when we realize that, it helps us to get our relational priorities right. That number one, we love God. That's our primary relational responsibility is to love God and to experience the love of God. And what we find is that we are to base our identity and find our security and our worth in the love affair that we have with God. God's love for us and us being set free by the cross to love him is what shapes our identity, is what yields real security. And once our identity and security are solved in Christ, we are then free to love people. We could now love people in a self-sacrificial way because we're secure and settled in our love affair with Jesus. So we need to make sure that our love affair with Christ is primary and from that flows our love for other people. You can't be effective in loving people until you've really nailed experiencing the love of God. And what we find is that the more that we dive into God's love and the more that we learn to love God, the more we discover, listen, this is very important, the more we discover that we need people less, but love them more. We need them less, but we love them more. And the more we delight in being loved without being needed. You see, the more we're secure in God's love for us and our relationship with him. We discover we need people less, but we're free to love them more. And we delight more in the love that's given back to us without this sense of being needed, this identity issue of wanting to be needed. So that's the basis for healthy relationships in Christ. As we start to talk about relationships, it's all in the back of our minds that relationships are hard, aren't they? Relationships are difficult. I'd say the hardest thing in my life 
our relationships. They're just hard. Comparatively, we want to say that theology and mission are a breeze compared to relationships. But truthfully, theology insists upon relationship. And mission is only accomplished through relationships. And so truthfully, what we say from scripture is that relationship is tantamount equal in importance to theology and mission. And what we need to realize in the church is that we do not sacrifice relationship on the altar of theology or on the altar of mission. Rather, relationship is the fruit and the context of theology and mission. The more that we get theology, truly, the more we'll value relationships. The more we endeavor to be on mission, the more we will value relationships. We can't be those people and we can't be that church that says, oh, we love the word of God and we love the work of God, but we're not practically loving each other and others. If we truly value the word of God, and the mission of God as expressions of who God is, then we are going to be a people who give careful attention to relationships, all the while realizing that relationships are hard. The best experiences that we will have as humans are relational, from love and laughter to sex and security. The best experiences are relational. The worst experiences that we will have as humans are also relational. From slander and slavery to adultery and betrayal, the most heartbreaking things we'll go through are relational things. In fact, all true brokenness is relational. People are broken because of relational difficulties. But we can also say that all real wholeness is relational. People are made whole and healed in the context of relationship. And if we want to look at history, the worst atrocities that we see throughout history are because of a broken relationship the broken relationship between humanity and God. And the most beautiful moments that we see in the history of humanity are expressions of right relationship. And what we must realize as people is that relationships are not optional. This is true for humanity in general. We are all created with relational longing and we are all given relational responsibility all created with relational longing and all given relational responsibility. An example of the fact that relationships are not optional is the fact that every one of you is a child of somebody. Every one of you was born to somebody. And when you were born, you were born into a relationship. Now, depending on what happens, that relationship may have been destructive. It may have yielded brokenness. Or it may have been fruitful and it yielded wholeness or usually some combination thereof. But every human being 
is born into relationship and carries with them a relational longing and has relational responsibility. Our penal system reveals how basic this relational longing is for all people. What's the worst punishment we can give someone other than the death sentence? Solitary confinement. When we remove them from all relational involvement, it's a horrible torture for them. And here's why that is. Part of what it means to be created as people in the image of God is that we are made for relational community. To be made in the image of God is to be made for relationship and community because God exists as a relational community of love, as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, a triunity. God has always been a relationship of love. To be made in his image is to be made for relationship. God has always existed that way, and then God extended that relationship through the creation of humanity. So we now, as people, as image bearers of God, and as the church, more specifically then, redeemed image bearers of God, we exist for relationship. We exist primarily for relationship with him. Jesus said the first and greatest commandment is you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. If you don't get anything else right, get that right. You exist to be in relationship with God. And then the second greatest commandment, Jesus said, is you shall love your neighbor as yourself. We were created for relationship. And the priority has always got to be right. As I mentioned previously, we love God first and then we love others. And, and when we mix that up, brokenness happens. Many of you here today are broken and wounded because you were looking for in people and from people what you can only find in and from God. You had wrong relational expectations. Wanting to get from people what you were designed to get from God, you, you reverse the order somewhere and it's yielded brokenness and woundedness in your life. What God's redemptive and healing love enables us to do is to have right relational longing, correct relational expectations, and to be able to exercise right relational responsibility to receive and to give in a correct way because our identity and our value are settled in the love of God. The more we discover and experience God's love, the more we are transformed into the image of Christ, the more we become radically other-centered. The more we experience God's love, the more we become radically other-centered. This relational other-centeredness is theological. It's based on who God is. The nature of God is being triune. One of the ways that theologians speak about the Trinity is through the social Trinity model or analogy. It's just an analogy that helps us to think about God. The social Trinity model. 
we, we can use social analogies to explore, think about, and understand who God is. It helps us to think about God relationally. One theologian says, the threeness of God reminds us not to think of God as static or as individual. Rather, we must think of God as eternal, dynamic fellowship. So one of the analogies that we can employ for God is a family. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God as family, meaning God living together, glorifying and loving one another as the persons of the Trinity. Like a family lives together loves one another, glorifies one another. This is what a healthy family does. In a healthy family, you'll hear a husband say, my wife is amazing. And you'll hear a wife say, my husband is awesome. And you'll hear, you'll, you'll hear parents saying, my kids are wonderful. And little kids saying, oh, my dad's the best. Oh, my mom is just the greatest. In a healthy family context, in living together, you'll hear these expressions of love and of glorifying the other. Now, in a similar way, by way of analogy, we discover that the members of the Trinity who have always existed together in a love relationship also glorify and point to each other. In the Gospels, we see the Trinity functioning this way. In the Gospels, we are told the Father loves the Son and the Father glorifies the Son. We're also told in the Gospels that the Son glorifies the Father and obeys Him. We're also told that the Spirit glorifies the Son and is the promised gift of the Father. We also see in the Trinity throughout the Gospels this radical other-centeredness even within the members of the Godhead. For example, in the Gospels, the Father tells us to look to and listen to the Son. This is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. Look to Him. The Father tells us to give our attention to the Son. And then the Son says, oh, well, you got to wait for the Holy Spirit. And then the Holy Spirit comes, and His ministry is to glorify the Son. And then Jesus is always seeking to direct us to the glory of the Father, even in the high priestly prayer. It's almost as if no matter what member of the Trinity you want to fix your gaze upon, they're pointing to the other. You look at the Father and the Father says, oh, look and listen to my Son. And the Son says, oh, wait for the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit says, oh, the Son. And the Son says, oh, the Father. And it's this... Trinitarian circle of radical other-centered love so that the social trinity model becomes for the church a guideline for relationships. It teaches us that we are to be a community of love. We don't exist apart from each other. And we are to be a community that is radically other-centered. We even exist for each other. A community of love that is radically other-centered, just like God himself. This other-centeredness that the Spirit of God works in every Christian is based on the nature of God and furthermore, the Word of God. 
When we go to the word of God, trying to glean something about relationships, if we were just to peruse the New Testament, we would hear these things. Be at peace with each other. Wash one another's feet. Love one another. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. Live in harmony with one another. Stop passing judgment on one another. Accept one another as Christ accepted you. Instruct one another. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Have equal concern for each other. Serve one another in love. Carry each other's burdens. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Be kind and compassionate to one another. Forgive each other. Speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. In humility, consider others to be more important than yourselves. Bear with each other. Forgive whatever grievances you have against one another. Make your love increase and overflow for each other. Encourage one another. Build each other up. Spur one another on. Don't slander one another. Don't grumble against each other. Confess your sins to each other. Pray for each other. Love one another deeply from the heart. Live in harmony with one another. Offer hospitality to one another. Serve one another. Clothe yourselves in humility toward one another love one another so that it becomes clear from scripture that relationships are mandatory costly messy and fruitful relationships are mandatory costly messy and fruitful relationships are mandatory you know what helps us think about this is the body metaphor that we see in the New Testament, that we are the body of Christ. The body metaphor helps us to realize that relationships are mandatory. It helps us to see our interconnectivity, that we're called the body of Christ underneath the headship of Christ. And basic thing we know about a body is it's connected. Hello. A body is connected, right? The hip bone's connected to the whatever bone and we're all connected. This body metaphor helps us to understand as the church, our God-designed interconnectivity. And what the gospel does is it confronts our autonomous individualism. When you are saved by the blood of Jesus Christ, you are brought into the community of the Spirit of God, you're no longer allowed autonomous individualism. You become a part of the body. What the work of God and the gospel of God does is it moves us from independence to interdependence. A body is interdependent upon its various parts, correct? To some degree, the foot is dependent upon the hand to tie the shoe on so the foot can do what the foot needs to do. Right? And the hands are dependent upon the eyes to see where the little thing is so that it could do the little thing it needs to do. And so we are moved from independence to interdependence when we are members of the body of Christ. Therefore, relationships are mandatory. Furthermore, relationships are costly. What helps us think about this is the bride metaphor that we see in the New Testament, that we are the bride of Christ. And we see that that intimacy that was won for us through the cross was costly. 
It costs the blood of Jesus Christ. God gave his son that we could be brought into intimate relationships, so much so that we're called the bride and he is the groom. So this bride metaphor concerning our identity helps us to realize that all Christian relationships are costly. There's always a cost to intimacy. That the prerequisite for meaningful Christian community is sacrifice. Everybody wants community. Everybody wants attention. Everybody wants to be fixed, but very few people are willing to count the cost. That what it really means is sacrifice, a giving of self. For God so loved the world that he gave. That becomes the model for Christian community. That our community, our fellowship with one another becomes meaningful when we choose to look to give. We have to move from consumerism to servanthood because of this bridal paradigm, this bridal metaphor. We move from consumerism, I want, give me, make it good for me, what do you have for me? That's the attitude of many of you. To servanthood, hey, how can I make it good for you? What can I give to you? What can I do for you? How can I give myself up for your betterment? That is a Christian ideal. That is what we are called into. The gospel moves us from consumerism to servanthood, but it always denotes sacrifice. Relationship is costly. Furthermore, relationships are messy. Always. Can I get an amen from you people? <laughs> First one of the day. Relationships are messy. What helps us to think about this is the family metaphor in the New Testament for the body of Christ. That we are brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. The interesting thing about family is you don't get to choose who you're family with. Right? You were born into a family and you're like, well, I guess this is my family. And same thing with you. You were born and they were like, well, I guess we'll make do. Gee whiz. I mean, this, okay. You didn't get to choose. You are just born into that family. No choice. It's forced upon you. You don't get to choose who's in the church. God chooses who's in the church. And then we are all put together in a family of love. Now there's some beautiful things about that. A beautiful thing about a family is they're not identified or characterized by their differences, but rather by their bond. They're characterized by their bond. For example, my family, myself and my daughter, we have hazel eyes. And my wife and my son have blue eyes. Now, there's a difference. What we don't do is sit across the dinner table and Daisy and I are like, those blue-eyed people over there. (laughs) Daisy, they're not like us. They have blue eyes. They're so different. (laughs) Nobody does that in a family. We're not characterized or obsessed with our differences. There's something bigger that has brought us together that ties us together. And for us, it is Jesus. And we are now characterized by our unity in the spirit of Christ. That's a beautiful thing that happens. Though we're diverse and we're different in every tongue, tribe, and nation, we are one in Christ as a family. And what a family does is a family sticks together. What the gospel does is it moves us again from consumerism to committedness. That's what this family metaphor does. It it begins to chip away at our consumerism and it moves us to being committed. The consumer comes into church and says, okay, if you don't meet my needs, I'm out of here. 
The consumer sees the church as dealing in religious goods and services. Hey, you better have some services for me and they better be good or I'm gone. But you see, in a family, you are committed. And when difficult times come in the family, you stay committed. When that doesn't happen in a family, when a father abandons or a child runs away or a mother disengages, even secular society looks at that and says, that's wrong. The family should have stuck together. You were going through a difficult time and you should have come together during that time, not bailed out. Family sticks together. And so it is in the church and in the local church. We're supposed to stick together. You've got to know that your local church will disappoint you and you will disappoint people in it. If you're a consumer, you will then leave. If you recognize that we are family, you will stick it out and we will stay together. Many of you are at this church because you're consumers and you got somehow bummed out at your previous church and so you just up and left, broke the family ties, dishonored what Christ is doing there and you're now here. You need to leave. You need to go back to that church, be reconciled to those people, be a responsible, loving family member and stick it out. When you're in a family, you get what you get and you don't throw a fit. You are with people that God has put you with. And what happens in the church is that God brings people who would otherwise be natural enemies and makes them family. Some of you are sitting in this room with people that you would never be in a room with otherwise. But you're both sinners saved by grace. And now you're in this family together. And though you would have previously been natural enemies, now we become tools in each other's lives that God uses to refine and beautify us. So we have to give attention to being a family. And when we do, we begin to see that relationships are fruitful. And the building metaphor in the New Testament helps us to lay hold of this. That relationships are fruitful because when we are drawn together by God, we are built together by God, First Peter says, to be a spiritual household that offers spiritual sacrifices. We are built together by Christ the stone as living stones, fit together by God. And in that, we are part of something bigger than ourselves, the mission of God and the gospel of God going forth. And we accomplish more as the people of God together than we ever could have separately. And there's a fruit that comes from the refinement of stones being fit together, tools being, one another being tools, working on each other, and God building us up into the unity of faith, maturity in Christ, and fruitfulness in each other's lives and on mission. So you see, relationships are meant to be mandatory, costly, messy, and fruitful. That's just the way it is. And it is that way because of the nature of, and the word of God. Therefore, the people of God have to cultivate those relationships at every turn. One of the things that we've been doing in this series is identifying how we try to cultivate these things we're talking about, being theological, missional, and relational. 
One of the ways that we practice being relational as a church is even in the church leadership. We practice what is called shared leadership. We believe that Jesus is the only senior pastor in the church. And that underneath him are a plurality of elders and pastors who practice equality, mutual submission, and mutual deference. We are equal before God. And at times we submit to one another, and at times we defer to one another. We even see that in the Trinity. The Trinitarian understanding is that Christ is equal to the Father, fully God. And yet we see Christ submitting to Father, to the Father on his mission. And yet we see the Father committing all judgment, John chapter 5, to the Son. So there's this equality, but this mutual submission and deference and the exaltation of other. And all of that yields intimacy. In the Trinity, we see intimacy. So amongst your church leadership here at Reality, we're best friends. My best friends in the whole world are the people that I work with at the church. That's who God has called us to be. That's what we endeavor to be. There's nobody on the face of the earth other than my immediate family that knows me better or that I know better than the leadership within the church. And we model that on who God is and what the word of God says and what that becomes is fruitful for mission. Now, what about your own life? Who do you need to connect yourself with? Who do you need to submit to, defer to, seek the betterment of, cultivate intimacy with for the glory of God and the furtherance of mission? You see, so many of us are stuck on my plan, my idea, my gift, my position. And you come into the church and you want position, you want platform, and you want recognition. And that's not what the church is. Church is a place of humility and mutual submission in the fear of Christ. How do you need to be practicing that in order to be on mission? We seek to know each other as we serve together in the church. And this gets harder as we get bigger. We're almost a church of 3,000 people now. And so it's hard to know everyone that's serving. But in general, ministry is most fruitful when it's done relationally. And so we want to know each other as we serve together. So a lot of you come into the church and you're like, hey, I'm new here. I've got awesome gifts. Wait till you see me in action. Put me in service. And we generally say, hey, you know what? Sit in the pews for about a year. And some of you are put off by that, but we say, we want to get to know you. Before we serve with you, we want to get to know you a little bit and cultivate relationships so that we can then, by grace, practice deferring to one another, mutual submission, honoring each other, trusting each other, having each other's backs. So we try to know each other. We do this with our missionary partners. We don't just partner with any mission agencies around the world. We try to develop strategic relationships like we have with uh, Child Hope International in Haiti, like we have with our orphanages in Thailand, like we have in Tanzania and other places in the world, in Mexico and the orphanages there. We develop strategic relational partnerships because we think that yields the most fruitfulness. What that comes from is a Mark three paradigm where when Jesus chose the 12 disciples, it says he appointed them that they might be with him and then he might send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out demons and to do ministry. But first they were to be with him. The priority was relational. He wasn't in a hurry to be missional. 
He wanted to first be relational. And it's the same in the body. You see, as we get bigger as a church, we're going to have to work really hard not to become a factory. A factory is just all about the bottom line and getting her done and getting the product out the door. That's not what the church is supposed to be. We want to be a garden. A garden is about cultivation and fertilization and fruitfulness and multiplication. And so that just takes time and relationship to stay away from a factory mentality and to be garden-like in our relationships and as we're on mission. We try to practice this relational component when it comes to the reality family of churches, the other churches that we've birthed and the other realities have birthed. We bring those church planters in, in relationship. They invest radically in this church. We invest radically in them. We spend years with them. And then we send them out in relationship and we maintain relationship. And all the church planters become some of our best friends on the face of the earth. And we've got their back por vida. We have their backs for life. And they've got ours. It's this deep relational commitment to joining God on mission. Every person in the church has this responsibility when it comes to home groups. Every person that calls this church home needs to be in a home group because we all are entrusted with relational responsibility. And it's hard to act out the fullness of that relational responsibility in a room or a service of hundreds of people. You can't really do it. So the model of the early church was they met in the temple, big group, and then they met home from home, home to home, small groups. Every one of us has a responsibility to break down the size of the church that we could be more relationally effective so that we have the opportunity to serve and to give. We get together in these intimate relationships and our attitude is, how can I serve you? How can I bless you? How can I help you? How can I give of myself for what Christ wants to do in your life? And Christianity is so radical when we do that. And as a church, we have that responsibility. John Wesley, a couple centuries ago, was the father of the Methodist movement. The Methodist movement has become famous for its small groups. And churches around the world still base some of their small groups on the ideas that John Wesley and Methodism developed. Our small groups are very much based on that, though we didn't know it, we discovered that later, but it's like what the Methodists do. When he was a young man wanting to serve the Lord, an older, mature Christian said this to him, quote, Sir, you wish to serve God and go to heaven? Remember, you cannot serve him alone. You must, therefore, find companions or make them. The Bible knows nothing of solitary religion. And so we all have this responsibility to develop fruitful relationships to the glory of God. As a church, like any other family, we practice discipline. If you're a mom and a dad, you got a family, you know, discipline your kids, you are in for a world of hurt. Spare the rod, spoil the child, the Bible says. Though you beat him, he will not die, will he, Proverbs says. Every once in a while, the kid needs a good whooping. Every once in a while, the people in the church need a good whooping. And so the church practices church discipline. The goal is always restoration, love, and fruitful relationships. Although I spank my children every single time I do, I immediately swoop them up in my arms and hold them till they're done crying. 
so that they know that I love them and that discipline is not synonymous with disapproval. It's not relational rejection. In the church, we practice church discipline. There's in people who are members of this church right now that are under discipline. And through that process, we hug them and we hold them and affirm our love for them because the goal is always restoration and refinement within the body of Christ. Because we care about such things, we're involved in intercessory prayer. Praying with one another and for one another. Again, this moves us from consumerism to servanthood. Many of your attitudes is, why won't someone pray for me? Who's caring for me? Who are you caring for? Who are you praying for? Everyone in the body has a responsibility to intercessory prayer. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that, you're, that you may be healed, James 5.16 says. So the question is not who's praying for me, who's helping me, who are you praying for? We all have that responsibility. Who are we helping? Because we're relational, we care about reconciliation. As I said before, when you get saved, you're brought face to face with natural enemies. There's people in this room that you wouldn't be with them otherwise if it wasn't because you've been brought into the same church by Jesus Christ. And so we always want to practice reconciliation. Some of you are in here right now and you're sitting on that side of the room because there's people on this side of the room that you've been bummed out at for years. When the sermon is over, you need to get your rear end up and go over to this side of the room and be reconciled. Some of you, it's people at other churches and you left there because of your little squibbles and your squabbles. You need to go back there and be reconciled. We are always, as a people of God, concerned about reconciliation. We've been given the ministry of reconciliation. God gave his only son that we might be reconciled to God and to one another. So we always practice reconciliation. And we need to be pursuing racial reconciliation. Do you know that we live in a series of cities here, Santa Barbara, Carpinteria, Ventura, where there's a radical racial divide between whites and Hispanics? Do you know that we walk down the same streets and don't even look at each other? Then I, when I walk down the main street of my community, that if, if there's Mexicans coming toward me, they often avert their gaze. And we often avert ours. There's this chasm, even though in this town it's 50% Hispanic and 50% white. Do you know that we don't eat at the same restaurants? The church has a radical God-given responsibility to pursue racial reconciliation. And we are called to be agents of healing. All of us are wounded in one way or another. And so we are, through reconciliation and love and prayer and giving, we're to help each other be healed in Christ. In the church, people are going to be healed. And in the church, people are going to be wounded. Your greatest relational experiences, some of them will be in the church. And your biggest nightmares will be in the church. That's just the way it is, because you're here. I'm here. We're messy people. We make big messes. We need to be committed to healing. We can't be that church that shoots our wounded. We got to be committed to reconciliation. Did you ever notice that to get into the church, perfection is not required? Like, hey, 
you know, it's so silly that we put on these little Sunday outfits and these little fake religious displays like, oh yes, I'm so holy and God bless you and everything's okay in my life and everything's okay with you and we're all okay and we try to look out at the world and say, look how okay we are, everybody come in. When in reality, we are the most messed up group of people in the world. And we ought to all be standing there with our arms hacked off, just like, hey, come in, just come on in. The world sees what a mess we are, and they're like, oh, okay, I think I'll come. (laughs) But we put on this, this fake Christian stuff all the time, this veneer. And what the church needs to learn to be is transparent. Honest with who we are and honest with who Christ is and what he wants to accomplish in our lives. We need to get over the fake veneer and be willing to be authentic. But if you're going to be authentic, be ready to be accountable. Okay? If you're going to open up all your basura, that's Spanish for trash. If you're going to pull out all your basura, then we're going to pull out the cinto. That's Spanish for belt. Sometimes you pull out the cinto and you need to be accountable. We got to be authentic, but we need to be accountable. In the church, we should expect to love and to serve, and we should expect to experience pain and sacrifice. We are theological. We gather to, for, and around Jesus. In doing that, we become concerned with what Jesus is concerned with, his mission in the world. And if we're going to be a part of that, then we've got to practice relational rightness. We've got to be committed to this because this is who God is. Lord, we thank you for this truth. And we ask now that your spirit would come and work in tandem with truth to transform us. That God, you would come and do a good work in us. That you would take our broken places and make them whole. You'd take our ashes and give us beauty in exchange. You would take our selfishness and make us selfless. You would deal with us where we're arrogant condescending, racist, sexist, elitist, and that you would humble us and that you would give us, Christ, your compassion and your love for others, that your church and our lives would become a more full representation of who you are as a community of love that reaches out in self-sacrificial mission. Lord, make us like that. Prayer team will be up here on your right. Communion is up here. Some of you are wounded and you're having a hard time getting over it. Come and remember the wounds of Christ. Okay? And that by his wounds we are healed. Come and let the cross of Christ minister to you. If there's someone you need to get right with in this building today, by all means, get right with them. Don't be a hearer of the word who deceives yourself. Let's be doers of the word that the life of Christ might be made more manifest in us. Let's do business with them.